back in the spring of 2020, if you were listening to this podcast back then, uh, we met a woman named Stephanie Dustin and her daughter, Charlotte. Hey, sweetie. How are you doing? Good. Good? Uh-huh. How did you feel when you had coronavirus? Bad. Why? I don't know. What, what felt bad? I don't know. Charlotte was three, and she was among the first wave of Americans to get infected with the novel coronavirus. What felt bad? My um, legs. Your legs? <laughs> How do you feel now? Good. You feel good? Mm-hmm. Why do you feel good? Because I'm out of the hospital. Okay, so Charlotte, she tested positive for coronavirus in um, February of 2020 on a regular PCR before they had the actual COVID-19 tests. Um, She developed myositis and um, some really serious inflammation. Um, And since then, she has been in and out of the hospital with really severe immune dysregulation. Um, So has her sister. (laughs) Charlotte's sister, Elizabeth. She was six back then, so Stephanie had two young children sick with COVID back when it wasn't entirely clear how dangerous it might be to kids. It was... It was a lot happening at one time. So there was definitely respiratory stuff going on. So they both had a lot of stomach pain. They had uh, a cough. They had congestion. Um, it sounded like like a bronchitis cough. Uh, Elizabeth had really high fevers. Um, Charlotte had Charlotte ended up having significant weight loss just because I think she wasn't eating and there was fatigue. Um, and then... Charlotte was severe enough to where we were taking her to the hospital, you know, quite a bit. And then Elizabeth was able to stay home, but things for Elizabeth just progressively got worse. Both Charlotte and Elizabeth had symptoms of systemic inflammation. Now, at the time, Charlotte was diagnosed with Kawasaki disease, which is an illness that causes inflammation in blood vessels all throughout your body. Now, doctors recognize this as multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, or MISC, now a well-known COVID complication in kids. In the year plus since, neither child's immune system has entirely settled down. Stephanie calls what they're experiencing immune dysregulation. So immune dysregulation for her looks like really severe rashes, uh, joint swelling, joint pain, difficulty walking, fatigue, um, difficulty breathing at times, um, episcleritis where her eyes turn really red and they hurt, migraines, um, and medication to manage a lot of it. Which sounds an awful lot like the symptoms of MISC, but their doctors don't really know what's going on exactly. They do know that since recovering from COVID, another disease has emerged for Elizabeth to fight. 
It's an autoimmune condition that causes muscle weakness and rapid fatigue in the arms and legs. So um, every 28 days, she is admitted for something called IV immunoglobulins, which is IVIG, um, to treat her neuromuscular disease called myasthenia gravis. And treatment helps her be able to be a, a normal kid that can go to the park and play and do all of the normal things. Doctors won't say COVID caused Elizabeth to develop myasthenia gravis. In fact, some say one thing has nothing to do with the other, while others are exploring possible links between the two diseases. It's more likely, though, that Elizabeth was already vulnerable to developing myasthenia gravis or was perhaps even experiencing mild symptoms of the disease when COVID came along and made it much, much worse. Sort of like if myasthenia gravis was a puddle of gas, right? And COVID was a lit match. Keep the puddle of gas and the lit match separate. No problem. Toss the match into the puddle, though, and you have a fire. So I reached out to Stephanie to check on her and the girls, in part because I was curious about whether they would be getting the COVID vaccine. Charlotte will soon be five. Elizabeth is eight. First, though, knowing everything COVID has put this family through, I wanted to know how Stephanie feels when she hears other parents minimize the risk posed by COVID to children, saying they can't get it or, you know, that it's no worse than a cold or the flu. My heart shatters. Um, Sorry. Because so many of those parents, they don't know if they're going to end up having the child that ends up having COVID and then something catastrophic happens. And it's just hard. It's hard to hear. Will Stephanie's children be vaccinated? So Elizabeth got her first vaccination today when she's being discharged from the hospital. So that was an exciting day. Um, And she will get her second dose um, during her next admission. She's admitted to the hospital every 28 days for her treatment. Um, And Charlotte will be getting her first vaccine on December 7th. But doesn't she worry about risk? I mean, she's been through so much. Does Stephanie have any vaccine hesitancy at all? I don't, because when you weigh the risks and the benefits, it's not even a question. Um, If my kids were to get COVID again, you know, I don't know if they'd make it through it. And I think at some point parents have to have trust in the FDA, have trust in the NIH, have trust in these scientists and doctors that are working day and night to try to help stop this pandemic and not have the severe side effects that people are having from COVID. It's... It's just not even a question to me. But for many parents, there are questions. They are vaccine hesitant, and I think understandably so. So let's dive in and get some answers for them, from risks versus benefits to whether you should give your children Tylenol before they get their shot. From Texas Public Radio and the Texas Newsroom, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie. In this episode, we are talking about kids 
and the COVID vaccine. On November 3rd, 2021, the Food and Drug Administration announced that children between the ages of 5 and 11, elementary school-aged kids, would now be eligible for the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID vaccine. And within a week from that announcement, the White House says around a million children got their first shot. That's a big number. One million. And it's an exciting development to the fight to end the pandemic in the United States. But that leaves around 27 million kids who are now eligible to get the shot who have not yet gotten their first dose. Now, that's not really a surprise. It's taking a minute for doctor's offices and clinics and pharmacies to get stocked up on the smaller, differently packaged, kid-sized vaccine doses. And initial demand has been really high, so it's going to take some time to get the vaccines into every waiting elementary school kid's arms. There is a line right now. But if the vaccine rollout in this age group follows the pattern set by other age groups, we can't expect that early rush to vaccinate to slow down significantly as the weeks go by. In fact, there is a significant number of parents who say they will take a wait-and-see approach with their kids and this vaccine, letting the eager parents and their kids go first. Or they have questions about the vaccine and their kids, and they don't know who to ask. So they're waiting, and they're wondering, while their children remain vulnerable, heading into another winter. So let's see if we can get those questions answered right now with epidemiologist Caitlin Jettelina, no doubt known to some of you on the internet as your local epidemiologist, and Dallas pediatrician Ellie Wolovitz. I talked to both of them right after the announcement that 5 to 11-year-olds were now eligible for the vaccine, and they were both thrilled. So psyched. We've been waiting for this. It's awesome. I'm so excited. Really big news, Uh, really welcome news, honestly. Um, Any step forward uh, to get us out of this pandemic is uh, one to be celebrated, I think. Let's start with Dr. Wolovitz, who sees elementary school kids every day. So why is this decision to let these kids get vaccinated such a big deal to you? I mean, grandparents have gotten vaccines, parents have gotten vaccines, people are ready to, you know, move on um, with their lives. And with children under 11, we've had to send them back to school um, unvaccinated and vulnerable. Um, And I think with the Delta wave, we really saw that children are absolutely um, part of the cycle of spreading the virus and that they can get sick, uh, they can spread the infection. And, um, Having them vaccinated is a crucial portion of, you know, achieving some semblance of herd immunity. There's this persistent myth that kids don't get infected with COVID, or if they do, they don't really get that sick. So the thinking goes that the vaccine may be more risky for kids than actually getting the virus and, you know, letting their body fight it off. But as we heard from Stephanie at the beginning of the show, both of her young daughters got COVID and it has been extremely difficult for them and it hasn't stopped being difficult a year and a half later. So, Dr. Jetalina, you've been crunching the numbers since the beginning of the pandemic. What is the truth about kids and COVID? 
So I think the, the we've done ourselves a disservice for, um, you know, always comparing kid outcomes to parent outcomes. But kids aren't spared from this pandemic. Uh, you know, more than 1.9 million 5 to 11-year-olds have been infected by COVID-19. More than 8,300 uh, hospitalizations among this age group. Um, more recently, COVID-19 has jumped to the sixth leading cause of death in this age group. So, you know, kids aren't supposed to die, but COVID is is getting to a, a few select unlucky kids. And, um, you know, this vaccine makes this a preventable disease. And, and so it is quite important and it's very needed right now. Dr. Willowitz, what have you seen regarding COVID and kids in Dallas? Well, I mean, at one point we had 17 children in the ICU at Children's with COVID-19. So we're absolutely seeing that children can get very sick. Now, the majority do fine. And that's, you know, that's wonderful. But it is the sixth leading cause of death. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that is so worrisome, too, is that during this Delta wave where we were seeing an increase in pediatric hospitalizations like we hadn't seen prior in the pandemic, 32% of those kids were, um, you know, previously healthy kids with no underlying conditions. So, you know, yes, thankfully, children haven't, you know, died in the numbers that we've seen, um, you know, older people and people at risk. But but absolutely, children can get it, can get very sick, can unfortunately die. So that might have previously been the thinking um, in the past year before Delta, right? But Delta changed everything. And so at this point, the benefits of the vaccine and how many hospitalizations that will prevent from COVID-19 outweighs the risks of hospitalizations associated with vaccine-induced myocarditis, which was you know, that is, that is the thing we worry about. That is the safety signal. That's what kids have been hospitalized for. Now I will say that the kids that have been hospitalized for vaccine induced myocarditis have been, you know, overall fine and have been admitted for observation, right? They have been admitted over an abundance of caution to watch them closely for 48 hours and follow their, their enzymes and make sure that their body's recovering. But for the most part, those children got ibuprofen and were discharged home the next day. So when you see hospitalizations from vaccine-induced myocarditis, you need to think these were children who came in with chest pain, had an elevated enzyme level, and were admitted to the hospital just to watch them. It's not like they were in the intensive care. Myocarditis is a scary potential complication, though. I mean, inflammation around the heart that could lead to an abnormal heartbeat, heart failure, sudden death. That's a complication I'm going to pay attention to and worry about and make decisions around. So, Dr. Jettelina, talk to me more about myocarditis and vaccines. So myocarditis uh, is a concern, and that was a concern uh, that we identified through our surveillance system about one month after the adolescent vaccine. Um, it's a true safety signal, so it's been shown to be directly uh, caused by the vaccine, but it's incredibly rare. 
the re so because it's incredibly rare, no, no cases of myocarditis popped up during this five to 11 year old clinical trial. And this is great, but we really expected it. Um, if you, because it's so rare, we need a really large proportion of people in a clinical trial. That's just not feasible time wise or money wise. Um, and so what we have to do is, uh, outweigh the benefits with risks of myocarditis uh, going forward. And the CDC and FDA uh, ran a couple of really intensive models about what's the possible rate of myocarditis in 5 to 11-year-olds and does it con- does the vaccine continue to outweigh the risks? And it does. Um, for about every 1 million doses, uh, about 60 young males may experience myocarditis. The other really important thing to recognize is that vaccine-induced myocarditis is very different than classically induced myocarditis. So, you know, before pandemic times, kids got myocarditis all the time from bacteria and other viruses. Um, that classic myocarditis is very severe. We're trained in epidemiology and medicine that with classic myocarditis, one third uh, will, of kids will die, one third of kids will need a transplant, and one third of kids will go home. So that's classic myocarditis. So at the beginning, we were starting to get very nervous seeing vaccine-induced myocarditis, but it's much more mild. Um, of all of the cases that we've tracked and we've identified in the United States, there have been no deaths linked to it. And all of the kids fully recover within an average of 34 days. And so that's very promising as well. That's reassuring that vaccine-induced myocarditis has not been found to be anywhere near as serious as virus-induced myocarditis Also, that no cases of myocarditis were found in the 5 to 11-year-olds who were in the Pfizer trial for the COVID vaccine. All good. But some parents still worry that the trial wasn't big enough or long enough to really tell us anything about the safety of the vaccine. So the the clinical trial was actually pretty big and I, it, it's been it's bigger than we've had in the past with vaccines. Uh, interestingly, the clinical trial was organized into basically two cohorts. The first was the f- phase three cohort was about 2300 kids aged five to 11 year old, years old. And then the and then the FDA asked Pfizer for a safety expansion group, which was basically the addition of about 2,400 more participants um, that were followed a, a couple weeks after that second dose too. And this really allowed for a more robust assessment of severe adverse events. How well did it work in trials? It looks like there's about a 91% efficacy rate for 5 to 11-year-olds, which if we remember before the pandemic, our goal was 50% efficacy. So 91% efficacy is just fantastic. The other thing we learned about the clinical trials was the vaccine works fantastically against Delta, which is the number, the variant that's circulating in the United States right now, which is very promising news. So we know that the vaccine works really great. 
We also know the vaccine is uh, safe as well. You know, there are going to be side effects. You know, five to 11 year olds will probably experience maybe a fever, chills, joint pain, but this should go away in about 48 hours. Um, and you know, adults, we all kind of experience this too, at least us unlucky ones did. The other thing is that uh, there were two adverse side effects that did pop up. Uh, one was swollen lymph nodes. So 13 people that got the vaccine in the clinical trial had swollen lymph nodes. This is very normal. We also saw this happen with adults. Uh, and this is basically a sign your immune system is working. It's engaged. Um, that also is very temporary. The other thing we saw in the 5 to 11-year-old clinical trial was hypersensitivity. So the, the child may get a little rash around the injection site. And I'm guessing that the research on this vaccine and kids is not over, right? Yes. So the clinical trial is ongoing. Uh, so if we remember that this is actually an EUA. So for an EUA, we only need two months of follow-up data. For full licensure, which is expected of vaccine sponsors, uh, if you get an EUA, they need six months of follow-up data. But even after they get full licensure in spring, they're going to be following these kids for two years. And honestly, they'll probably be followed for their lifetime um, just because of how much these clinical trials are, are under the microscope right now. Support for the Petri Dish podcast comes from Pay It Forward, providing sober living for newly recovering individuals with 92% success completion rate, allowing them to achieve self-sufficiency and long-term recovery. More at payitforwardsa.org. So let's talk about dose size. Adults and adolescents have gotten larger doses of the Pfizer vaccine, and 11-year-olds are getting little tiny ones. It is. It is a, it's actually a much smaller dose than the adult vaccine. Uh, it's about one-third the dose, so 10 micrograms. The adult vote, or the 12-plus dose, was 30 micrograms. Um, because it's a smaller dose, too, though, we're seeing uh, less prevalence of side effects, which is also, I think, welcoming to a lot of parents. And we expect the, the risk of myocarditis will also decrease because of that as well. Interestingly, if you have a larger 11-year-old and a smaller 12-year-old, the larger 11-year-old will still only get 10 micrograms of vaccine, while the small 12-year-old will still get 30. Now, that's because, unlike most medicines, vaccines aren't size or weight dependent. If you're bigger, you might need more of a certain type of medicine for it to work. But vaccines target your immune system. They are teaching your immune system how to fight something, right? And your immune system changes over time with physical development. So 5 to 11-year-olds have really robust immune systems, and this research has found that it doesn't take nearly as much of the COVID vaccine to get those young immune systems revved up and ready to learn. So they were looking for a sweet spot here. What dose of vaccine would confer immunity with the fewest side effects. In the case of the Pfizer vax, they settled on 
10 micrograms. But that brings us to the pretty common idea that kids have these really strong young immune systems and they don't need a vaccine to fight COVID. Yeah, so I, I think a lot of people call this natural immunity, if you if you may. And you know, there there is a there is a quite a few kids that have quote unquote natural immunity. Uh, a study from the CDC said about thirty eight percent of kids do. But what that tells me is one, there's a ton of kids still susceptible. And then two, you know, natural immunity uh, is very random again. Uh, some people get a very protective response that will last months and months and months. Some people won't even mount a response at all. And the challenge is we don't know, we can't predict who will fall into each category. And so the, the really the safest thing to do right now is for everyone to get the vaccine to one, know that they're covered. Um, and then two, to prevent reinfection because we're just not confident on the longevity of this natural immunity or uh, infection based, uh, immunity. And then there is the big scary one to me, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children that we talked about with Stephanie at the beginning of the show. Known as MISC or MIS-C, it's an extremely serious potential complication of COVID. It's called multi-system inflammatory syndrome because it can cause potentially deadly inflammation in any of a child's body system. So their heart, their lungs, their kidneys, their brain, skin, eyes their gastrointestinal organs. So that's why the symptoms can be so varied. Stomach pain, bloodshot eyes, those red eyes Stephanie was talking about, diarrhea, dizziness, rash, vomiting. It's brutal. MISC is a post-COVID syndrome. So sometimes kids whose COVID was so mild they were never diagnosed have come down with MISC seemingly out of nowhere. Then they test positive for COVID antibodies. Now, not many kids get MISC. CDC reports only 5,526 cases, but 48 of those kids died. And if your child dies from something like this, it doesn't matter at all how rare it is. So MISC is a short-term complication of COVID infection in children. We know about some of those, right? What we'll be learning about for decades, though, are the long-term complications. We are only beginning to understand this disease. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, so we have the case numbers, we have the hospitalization numbers, but there's also other, you know, long-term impacts this pandemic's had on kids. And that's one of them is the long COVID. We have a really, we've been having a really hard time estimating long COVID because the symptoms are so, they range so drastically. Um, but it looks like long COVID's about, you know, seven to eight percent of kids will experience long COVID. And this ranges all the way from fatigue and headaches to even trouble concentrating, chronic muscle and joint pain and cough. And it really impacts their quality of life, uh, limitations to physical activity, feeling distressed, mental health challenges, decreased school attendance and participation. And so you're right, you know, we're seeing long COVID six, eight weeks plus after initial infection. But what's even scarier is we don't know what's going to happen in five, 10, 20 years among these kids. Um, 
Some adult research has shown that long COVID can contribute to decreased brain matter. And so again, we're just really not confident in our knowledge of long COVID. Um, and it, it can, it can be a little, it can be burdensome for sure. But this is the thing, right? Some of the vaccine hesitant parents are vaccine hesitant because we don't know the long term effects of the vaccine either. That's true. Uh, we don't we don't know the long term um, impact of the COVID-19 mRNA vaccine. Uh, you know, we have about 12 months, 15 months of follow up data from the original clinical trials. But that's it. But I think a lot of people don't recognize or even realize that our research in mRNA started back in the 1960s. Um, and our clinical trials started in the 90s and 2000s. And so we've been, we've had these mRNA biotechnology for quite a while and none of those clinical trials did long-term effects pop up. The reason those clinical trials didn't go to full FDA approval wasn't because of the safety, but was because of the effectiveness. We just didn't figure out a way to get the mRNA because it degrades so quickly to your cells in an effective way. And we happened to try fat bubbles for the COVID-19 vaccine. And thankfully, it worked amazingly beyond our expectations. And so... You're right. We don't know the long-term effects of the vaccine, but we know a whole lot about mRNA and we know a whole lot about the human body where there's just no biological plausibility that long-term impact would ha effects would happen. Okay. I have some pediatrician questions. Dr. Woolovitz, I got my booster last week and I did the same thing for that that I did for my first two shots. I hydrated a bunch and then after my shot, I took an anti-inflammatory. So what do you tell parents of your young patients to do before they head into your office for a shot? Yeah, I mean, I would make sure that your child is fever free and is, you know, feeling well on the day of the vaccine. Um, since it's cold out, I would say, you know, the vaccine is going to be administered in the arm. So it would be helpful to wear like a t-shirt under your sweater or jacket. So they're not having to, you know, take off their long sleeve shirt or sweatshirt in the pharmacy or pediatrician's office. Um, I think being well hydrated is is great. The recommendation is that uh, children be observed for 15 minutes. Um, after their vaccine. If a child has a history of anaphylaxis to anything um, and you regularly carry an EpiPen, this would be a good time to still bring your EpiPen. Although any vaccine administrator should also have an EpiPen, but if your child has a history of anaphylaxis, this would be a good time just to bring it, just to be safe. I've talked to docs who give a hard no to pre-medicating. So no Tylenol or ibuprofen before the shot. Yeah, you can take Tylenol or ibuprofen um, afterwards if your child does run a fever or has a particularly sore arm. Um, but the majority of kids aren't. So I wouldn't give it prophylactically, just if you need it. So here's the real test of how comfortable these two experts are with the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID vaccine for kids. Jetalina and Willowitz are both moms. Will they take their kids to get their shots? I have two that are eligible um, in this age group. And so that's fantastic. And I'm so excited. I won't be giving them the vaccine. They'll be going to their pediatrician's office. But, but yes, I'm very excited. And, um, and then my, my youngest, who's four, is, um, is in the Moderna trial. 
Yeah, my 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 daughter is a, one of my daughters is two and a half, and the other is thirteen months old. And so, you know, we're next in line, and and so that that date can't come soon enough. Uh, so we can finally put COVID as a vaccine preventable de- disease for the entire population. Still, both moms and I understand the hesitation of other parents. The wait and see parents. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of wait and see parents. And I think that's okay. I would encourage them to talk to their pediatrician. The the pediatrician really knows the history of the child and their medical history the best. And so they should they're really there to to stop and listen. Um I would also try and identify what you're waiting to see. Um, are you wanting to see more children, uh, you know, the, the real world effectiveness of this vaccine? Um, are you wanting X million of children to get this vaccine? I would, I would set a goal to see what you're waiting for. Um, because if you're waiting to see if the vaccine's effective, uh, we, we've already have that evidence. Then the third thing I would say is try and identify why you're hesitant um, and seek out resources, and your pediatrician may help with this too, that address that hesitancy or address that um, misinformation or address the science that you're uncomfortable with. Um, so you can make evidence-based decisions, um, not re- decisions based on fear. And so um, I, I think together, you know, there's, a, like I said, a lot of parents that are waiting to see, and we have to be patient with them and sit down and really answer a lot of questions, really good questions that they have. There's some chatter that getting this age group of kids vaccinated could break the back of this pandemic in the United States. Schools will become safer and families will become safer if little ones are less likely to bring the virus home. So it seems logical that this is a really big step. But is it? It's enormous. It's absolutely it's absolutely huge. You have all of these school age kids um, that are are vulnerable. And, you know, I mean, I think the estimates are that perhaps up to 42 percent of children have had a natural infection. Um, and have some type of immunity. Of course, that's hard to quantify, and it is recommended that children who've had a previous COVID infection do get the COVID vaccine um, to protect them for future variants. But, um, but this is this is huge. This is you know a significant chunk of our population, and there's no way we'll reach herd immunity without them. The more we people we get vaccinated, the closer and closer we get to this darn end of this pandemic. And I think a lot of epidemiologists are hopeful that spring uh, will t- will move into an endemic state. Um, and and I think there's a lot of value and optimism. And so so we'll see what happens. To be determined. <laughs> Thank you to both epidemiologist Caitlin Jetalina and pediatrician Dr. Ellie Willowitz. I have been really worried about elementary school-aged kids since it became clear they'd be going back to school. The only age group in these big congregate settings without access to vaccines. And many of them wouldn't even have masks to protect them. So it was worrying, right? It felt to me like we were marching our kids into a kind of war and putting them on the front lines even without any weapons at all to protect them. 
I knew they needed to be back in school as soon as possible. We all knew that, right? But they were so vulnerable. But now they have access to safe, effective protection from the deadliest effects of COVID. And if they get their first shot as soon as they can, they will likely have full immunity by the time their winter holiday breaks roll around. That's not just good news for their health, but for their parents' health and their grandparents, for their vulnerable friends and family members. Now, even if they get both shots before Thanksgiving, no five to 11 year old will have full immunity by Thanksgiving Day. Like adults, they need two shots three weeks apart, and they're considered fully vaccinated two weeks after their second shot. So even Hanukkah will be mostly outside that immune window for most 5 to 11-year-olds this year. So parents will still need to take all the well-known precautions for just a little longer, masking, keeping distance, you know, all the stuff we're old hands at by now. By Christmas by New Year's, by the time kids go back to school in January, usually bringing with them all the viruses they picked up at Grandma's house over the holidays, these kids should have all the protection afforded to them by being fully vaccinated. No more unarmed frontline soldiers in this war against this virus. That's good news. That's very good news for all of us. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by me. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. Additional production, music, and sound design by Jacob Rosati. TPR's news director, Dan Katz, edited this week's show. And special thanks, as always, to Mark Pemmett. Petri Dish is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration of public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon. <laughs>